Hello and welcome to another episode of Design for Change. I'm Stefan and for today's conversation I was joined by Josh Snow to talk about his project Gunk Space and what architects and architecture can do to implement change. Gunk is referring to what many of us consider dirt or waste, but Josh reimagines the concept of gunk in a positive light. Historically associated with negative connotations, gunk is now seen as a transformative force to address climate change and environmental degradation, particularly in the Matanza-Riachuelo Basin in Argentina. The project proposes a comprehensive plan for soil restoration and urban regeneration through the creation of nodes and micronodes that facilitate composting, soil care and ecological restoration. These nodes are strategically located across the basin, emphasizing the importance of decentralized community-based approaches to environmental and societal change. The project envisions a shift from a competitive extractionist model to a cooperative eco-hydrological one. Let's roll the intro and hear about Josh's views from himself. We have to have a part of the daily lives. Sea levels will rise in the next 30 years by the we same amount as they did in the last 100 years. Still to this day, fossil the United fuels. States will withdraw from the Paris Climate what Accord. What can we do? What can we do that we're not already? What can we do? This is this is welcome, 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 welcome to as I designed design for change. For me, it's really interesting. Um, I mean, I know you, and I, uh, I know your interest in architecture, but what I would be really interested in knowing to get started is how did you get into architecture or design? What were your motivations to yeah, go into spatial, spatial design structures? And I remember I was in uh, Utah when I was like 15, and I was in a program where bad kids are sent uh, to just basically live out of a backpack in the middle of the mountains or desert, depending on the week. We've gone weekly expeditions. <clears throat> Sometimes, you know, Utah, like the southern half is desert and the northern half is mountain. It's a, kind of, it's a cool state. Um, so we would be backpacking and doing all like rock climbing and doing all, all this like crazy outdoor shit. And um, it was like during that time that I realized I wanted to be an architect, which I don't know what was influencing me about being like not indoors for six months. Like we were sleeping in tents. We were sleeping in sleeping bags with tarps that we had to fold into tents, like attached to like trees every night. And sometimes it was snowing. So like, tarps, not tents. Yeah, tarps, not tents. And sometimes it was literally like snowing, like half a meter at like at night, and we'd have to like wake up in the middle of the night to do jumping jacks so that our body temperature wouldn't go so low that we'd freeze to death. So yeah, I don't know. It was like then that I was like, yeah, architecture, but I don't know why. And then when I got into university, I pivoted to deciding to do urban design. That was actually a wise choice, I think, because I uh, am much more drawn to urbanism. And uh, it was at a like very unscientific school. It's uh, Parsons, the new school. And I was like taking philosophy classes at Eugene Lang. And uh, I was I was chasing becoming an architect. So then I was looking at 
master's programs. And then it's funny that I finally got to Delft because I took four years between my bachelor's and my master's and uh, did stuff around the world between. And uh, I really was hell-bent on becoming an architect. And then as soon as I got to Delft, I was like, I don't want to be an architect. To me, already so interesting that it's not about being an architect for the architecture's sake or being an urban designer for urbanism's sake, uh, but it's very much also about your personal view about that. Uh, did you always, or did you start your bachelor's with this personality that is very much intertwined with your practice, uh, or was this something that you developed uh, through philosophy classes, for example? Yeah, I, <clears throat> for some reason, uh, became really obsessed with uh, food waste. Even during my bachelor's, I was like obsessed with food waste and compost. And uh, that is a spatial problem. And so I think that is now that I've done this thesis on food waste and uh, land use practices, it's like this thing where uh, it's infrastructure, right? And so architecture, at least, like there's all these different ways to approach architecture. And right now it's like, we have the Starkitects and the, you know, Bjark Engels and Zaha Hadid's and all these people that are mostly producing shit. And I thought like, okay, maybe I need to like be going for that. And it was this thing during my bachelor's where it was like, I was pursuing these kind of infrastructure, food waste, urban systems, uh, like more leftist, like political leaning things that, uh, how to incorporate all of that, like politics and culture and infrastructure and how do we embed that within the city and whatnot. But then it was also this like, oh, but I have to work at like OMA or Bjark Engels or something. And they're not interested in those types of projects typically. And it's this like thing where it's like, well, I just need their name on my CV and then I'll just work there for a year or two and then I'll have their name on my CV and then I can do whatever I want. <laughs> and I don't know if that's really true. And I also think everyone's kind of tired of these like star architects. And uh, like, I felt like that was a way to kind of validate, like I'm good at this and I have proven myself. But I think now having masters from TU Delft, like it was kind of like, all right, I don't have to prove anything anymore. It kind of allowed me to just fully go all in on, I guess, compost. Mm -hmm. <laughs> compost is architecture. I don't want to call myself an architect. I don't want to be an architect. I don't believe in architecture. I don't believe in like buildings. Uh, I don't believe in like a building. <clears throat> I think like systems are much more interesting. And I think uh, in the Anthropocene or like as we're trying to remove ourselves from the Anthropocene, like we can't keep focusing on these like shiny objects and like, okay, some buildings can be like truly inspirational and amazing. And I guess like architects have like a place because within climate change, within trying to mitigate worsening climate change or collapse, buildings account for like 40% or yeah. something of total yeah, the building industry. greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. And so, okay, architects definitely, like we need to be insulating old buildings and like doing all of that. But I don't think like 
intellectually or theoretically that is necessarily the most interesting thing. I think architects, if we're going to continue to call ourselves that, is uh, it's much more interesting to approach it as like we're curators or like uh, we facilitate different uh, possibilities between different actors. So really we're just bringing together people because also like these like high-rise developers and stuff the architect is increasingly obsolete like we they don't need us like they have the BIM software and they have like it's really just like contractors and developers who are like building most of the buildings today and the architect is this kind of rarefied object where they have agency and authority to be like this is my building and this is what it looks like usually it's like you're working for a developer or you're just the architect hired to like approve the plans that was already designed so you don't really get a lot of input so that's why you end up with these like really sad buildings that no one likes to be inside you say the term architect becomes obsolete or should become obsolete rather seeing yourself as a facilitator for change maybe do you think that architects or uh, facilitators curators can we change the world as designers? Uh, I mean, it's a very open question. I think when you look at the Bjarke Ingels image movies or the Zaha Hadid image films of, of a building, you have these great f f photo shots, basically, with an up upbeat, suspenseful music, and they talk about innovation and that this is basically the greatest building ever, and you feel like, okay, this not save the world. Uh, but in reality, often it's just another building. How do you see that? Uh, is, uh, do you see your own practice as well or yourself uh, as someone that can change the world? Or is it also sometimes maybe okay to just change a community? I don't think I'm going to change anything. And I don't think as individuals we can change anything for the most part. I mean, Come on, you know, this is a hopeful podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry, there's no hope coming out of this guy. Um, it's uh yeah i'm I, the older i get the more pessimistic i get uh and i mean no like i do have like underlying optimism because that's what like you know i have to just delude myself into believing in so that i don't kill myself but uh yeah uh i do think that like it's probably more we need to try to locate ourselves within specific communities and they're you can have some impact on in other individuals' lives, mm -hmm. like by creating a like space for like whoever, whoever your community is. I don't think that we have any hope to really alter like global capitalism, but uh, you know, who knows? We might. The, these systems can suddenly change overnight uh, historically, and then suddenly we find ourselves in a completely new. Uh, reality, but I, yeah, based on the way things are going, like, it feels like it's <clears throat> probably just getting worse. Well, okay. Uh, then let me ask you this, because obviously there are so many reasons, and I mean, we talked about this before multiple times as well, looking into the future or in the near distant future and seeing all these challenges uh, ahead. Is there something, on the other hand, that gives you hope? Not really. Really? Yeah. But so when you, I mean, obviously, like you look at the larger systems and you know. Is it like, why am I doing this? 
Well, yeah, in a way, I mean, there. I do believe you when you say uh, you're maybe ignoring things or so to stay uh, hopeful or uh, you're focusing on certain things that are going great to stay hopeful. I mean, knowing you, I think there definitely is something must be there that m made you go into the direction that you're now in. Yeah, initially. And, and that, that is... I think must be still to connected to uh, to hope because otherwise there's no reason to do anything, right? Yeah, there's no reason to do anything. So it's like nihilism is always like, I'm always on the precipice of that. But uh, there was, I think there's still some optimism. But I think now I keep doing what I'm doing. Whereas like 10 or 15 years ago when I started entering into this, uh, started chasing this dream it was because I thought I could change things and now I just don't feel that I can and it's okay because I'm just going to produce this work and if people want to engage with it then it's there like it's basically like the idea is that I have like a book of gunk space that's like, look, this is how you can fix the planet. Maybe have a look at it if you like. And it's not that I'm coming up with anything new. It's like I was saying, like, I think it's extremely uh, pretentious if I say I'm not an architect, I'm a curator. But for like the sake of that argument, if we were to say that I'm something kind of like a curator or like a synthesizer, or a facilitator, then like I'm, you know, gunk space. My thesis is just a bunch of disparate and related things that are coming together to like provide the potential for a different uh, future. And uh, I don't think that anyone is going to pick it up and be like, oh my gosh, let's do all of this right now. Um, you know, people in power probably won't do that. But it's there, and that's why I make it, because... But you're giving power to the people then, no? Also. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean that, ideally. That, see it, but uh, uh, maybe actually let's let's uh, start from the beginning, because now we're already talking about Gang Space, your project. How did that project evolve? How Where did you start? Was it by chance that you said you wanted to go to uh, Buenos Aires and do something in, in, in South America? Or uh, did you already have this pre-defined uh, idea that you say, okay, I want to uh, yeah, change a system? Yeah, I want to change a system. Uh, but it was also a total circumstance because it was the fact that it was in Argentina. It was almost in Houston or, uh, or uh, Guangzhou or because part of the Delta Futures Lab there's five of us researchers, and we each had to research an urban delta somewhere in the world, and we were kind of totally assigned at random. And then we had to do a multidisciplinary project with engineers and uh, you know hydrologists and water managers and um, civil engineers. And then we traveled to Buenos Aires because that was the uh, urban delta that we decided to work with, the Piranha Delta, which is this 15,000 square kilometer area of marshlands that uh, I think it's like 400 kilometers in length. And it's all right there beside this giant sprawling city of Buenos Aires. 
and like historically the two like the city and the delta have been distant from each other but the delta grows on average about 100 meters per year so it's just this constantly advancing coastline that is going to in like the next 100 years or so be the the coastline of the delta is going to be right in the center of uh, Buenos Aires city but but so it's composed of all these fragile marshlands and that's like obviously very important for the hydrological system and just ecology in general. Um, but the the area surrounding uh, the delta is called the pampas, and that's like the grasslands that uh, have been converted into mostly soybean and uh, corn crops, among others. But it's all monocultures, and basically where there isn't uh, where it's not paved in asphalt, it's a monoculture so the land is completely uh, and the soil is completely taxed and so now farmers are going into the delta and converting the marshlands they're pumping out the water they're poldering it and they're uh, converting them into uh, monocultures and so that's having calamitous impact on this ecosystem Buenos Aires is, is just constantly sprawling like pretty much every city everywhere is sprawling it's 4,000 square kilometers, I think, um, as of 2020. And it just keeps going out and out and out. And so uh, it's this question of like, how do we contain uh, urban processes? And we need to also be thinking about agriculture from the same lens as urbanization. Like they're all the same thing. This is what I was talking about in my uh, presentation. That's a global phenomenon. and. I've been trying to understand from an urban perspective how we can prevent sprawl in the form of typically buildings, but also now with this lens agriculture, because built space only occupies one and a half to three percent of land surface globally. Agriculture is like 38 percent. It's the leading cause of deforestation and it is just going up and so that's leading to the biodiversity crisis on top of the climate crisis and so all of these things are connected and so like what I, what I mean to say is that it could have happened in Houston because it's all happening there it could have happened in uh, the Pearl River Delta in China it could happen anywhere it was just by chance that it's in Argentina you then started going into to the the port, but uh, the port was Puerto Madero. Puerto Madero, yeah, and that was the starting point of the, how that kind of evolved. Yeah, so Buenos Aires was first settled in uh, the early 16th century uh, by Pedro de Mendoza, and then uh, his colony failed within a few years, and he died of syphilis on his way back to Spain to like get more supplies. Um, and then with him dead, the colony basically, they, they had to resort to cannibalism and those who weren't eaten uh, sailed up to Asuncion in Paraguay because that was a more established outpost at that point, up the Parana River through the Delta. Then uh, Juan de Garay, I think, sorry for the Argentinians listening who know their history better than I do, uh, came back and resettled in like 1580-ish. And then it all started right in the Puerto Madero, uh, where the Casa Rosada is today, in the old town. And then the Riachuelo, the Matanza Riachuelo, which is the river that is the topic of my thesis, is 
just like three kilometers south. And I think I read that even way back then, like that's where they would kind of keep their ships docked. And so the river, which is today the most polluted river in the country, that's the engine of Argentina as like from its inception, because it's where 30% of the GDP is located today. And it's been part of like the industrialization of Argentina occurred primarily within the Matanza-Riachuelo river basin. And so the further northwest you go towards the delta, you have these uh, kind of country clubs that uh, popped up, I think, in the 19th century, where you know people would go to the delta as like a kind of weekend house getaway to like be within nature, quote unquote. Uh, the further southeast you go, the more industrialized it gets and the poorer it usually gets. And so uh, it's just interesting that there's this axis of uh, like rich to poor. But yeah, and so these are things that have been constructed <clears throat> hundreds of years ago and they're still plaguing uh, the city today. And it's also, as climate change uh, continues, Buenos Aires, like the center of the city, is built up on these hills. But then where the uh, Riachuelo flows is quite low-lying, and so it is going to have some uh, flooding. There already is occasional flooding, but as the seas get higher, there's going to be flooding in these zones. And uh, this is also like where the poorest people live there is this entity that was created in 2008 called ACUMAR, which is the authority of the Matanza-Riachuelo River Basin. And they're working to clean things up. And so all of this like, kind of led to being like, okay, if we're looking at the whole world, it's like, where do I narrow in? And so I found the hydrological basin was this like really beautiful scoping device where you can zoom all the way into an individual building and then it's connected like through a series of nested scales it goes all the way out to the planet and so that's such a nice mechanism to be able to continue to zoom in and zoom in and zoom in so that you get the specificities and the actual problems and then you can also define interventions of what can be done um, so the Akumar, the authority of the Matanza Riachuelo Basin. There was a Supreme Court case in 2008 that ruled that, like, the country, the national government, the industries within the basin need to uh, clean up the basin, uh, prevent further pollution, clean up the existing pollution, increase potable water and sewage systems, and make living conditions better for the people who do live there, because six million human pe human inhabitants are uh, within the basin. Um, so it just made sense to kind of jump onto the fact that all of this activity is already going on there. There's already a focus on it. And so that's why it, it's, it's like the, the, the Delta is on the West and the Matanza Riachuelo is on the East. And so it's these two hydrological entities that kind of frame the city and the city just ignores, it definitely ignores the Matanza Riachuelo historically. Like uh, every person I met there that I would hang out with, when I told them what I was doing, they would be like, what the hell are you doing down at that river? Like, no one goes there. It smells terrible. It's polluted. Like, there's nothing going on there. And it's funny to me because maybe that's how it will always be, but it probably won't be if we just look at, like, historically, like, what's happened in New York and what's happened in London and what's happened to all of these, like, formerly industrial places that had terrible toxic rivers and now it's some of the most expensive real estate in those cities to live along these rivers. And so 
that's definitely not the ambition of my project to just clean it up and make it a gentrified paradise. Um, but it is probably eventually the way things will go, especially with like the continuing sprawl, because, you know, Brooklyn 30 years ago, no one would have imagined that uh, it would be what it is today, which is one of the most expensive places in the United States to live. And when, when you went to the river, uh, where did the curator Josh Snow come in or the, the collaborator in a way? Yeah, there's tons of people who have way more knowledge than I do on this topic. And so um, I was trying to meet with as many of them as possible. There's all of these really different, amazing uh, organizations and individuals working on it. The my, my first contact was with this woman named Delina Puma Rocabado, who works with the Union de Trabajadores de la Tierra, the Union of Workers of the Land, which is a nonprofit group that represents a lot of like 20,000 small scale family owned farms across the country. And they promote agroforestry principles and they promote, uh, they're kind of a lefty organization. So they promote all this really good stuff. Um, they also work with compost and they work with bokashi, which is like a type of fermentation. It ferments the food waste. And I was going around with her visiting these different farms and talking to farmers because I thought like it should be about agriculture. And so I also should maybe take a step back and say, I've mentioned food waste already, but like, how is it related to like land use practices and whatnot? I've had this fascination for at least 10 years now about food waste and compost and like it just... I've never understood like the stupidity of like everywhere in the world for the most part. Like there's occasionally programs where people separate their food waste and there's collection bins and stuff. And we have that here and we have that in New York. We have that in here places in Canada. And, you know, I think Berlin has, you know, there's different cities that have these programs, but like the majority of it is still just like, there's these separate bins that say, okay, regular trash and, uh, compost or biodegradable trash and then recycling and if you look in these bins and this is like literally everywhere where they have this it's all just everything in every bin no one knows how to sort their waste no one knows like what compost is or if they do they don't know how it's related to the banana peel that they're holding and like which bin does it go into there has to be a cultural change and so Uh, in the context of Buenos Aires, 96% of all of their waste goes to one landfill, and 50% of that is organic, and that produces upwards of 50% of the entire region's methane emissions annually, and methane is a greenhouse gas that's 25 to 30 times more potent than carbon dioxide, so it's terrible, um, and it just doesn't make sense that we're not composting this, and like in different cities globally, it usually tracks by GDP. So like New York and Berlin, Paris typically have around 25% of their entire waste stream is organic. Middle income cities like Buenos Aires have about 50%. And then uh, lower income cities like Dhaka uh, have upwards of 75%. And uh, it's not that they're poor, therefore they're producing more organic waste. It's just because they have less, you know, like iPods and, and like H&M t-shirts that they're throwing away. So it just makes the organic waste makes up more of a larger percentage. So it's a global problem. And then land use, if we're defining through urbanization of, uh, you know, built environment and then the unbuilt environment, which is I call agriculture. 
how do we improve these spaces? And it's not necessarily bad that we're taking up 35% of the land surface for agriculture. It's just the kind of agriculture that's being practiced is mostly monocultures that are reliant on petrochemicals that are polluting the ground, which is killing off all of the soil organisms and mycelium and root systems within the soil. And then when it rains, that uh, those chemicals wash off into waterways and then they go into the oceans and then we have algal blooms and we have all of the problems and then it's killing marine life and the collapse of like the uh, biodiversity in the oceans. So it's all connected. So what we need to be doing, first of all, we also do need to take up less space and allow for more space. But the space that we do have, it's not like we cut off half the planet or a third of the planet where we can just like have like all of our pollutive processes. It's that like we need to integrate ecological and hydrological systems and cycles and entities back into our built and unbuilt spaces by having these kind of pockets and corridors and buffer zones uh, for biodiversity. And so if you just transform along the edges within the margins, what I call interstitial ecologies, then you can have these corridors for biodiversity within the uh, most dense parts of your city within your monoculture crops. But ideally, we would be transforming monocultures into food forests slowly because it's not going to happen overnight. And if we try to make it happen overnight politically, that's going to cause havoc within like you know farming communities and the affiliated uh, industries. So if we just plant them interstitially, there's all these like scientific articles that are saying how that can have such profound impacts on biodiversity and it increases the uh, health of the soil. And then there's also the phosphorus and nitrogen crisis that is in uh, agricultural areas where already like it, we, we just simply can't continue to farm through monoculture systems and agriculture has never existed outside of the Holocene and we're definitely leaving the Holocene right now. Uh, so we don't even know if the project of agriculture as a human project can continue within the Anthropocene. But to like very chaotically try to tie this all back together is that uh, we have all of this waste that could be getting composted. And if we were to compost it, then that compost could get applied to urban and agricultural soils, which would then improve soil health and create a closed loop system. And then we basically just have to get rid of plastic because we're deluding ourselves to pretend that we're recycling it. All of it's ending up, or most of it's ending up in the ocean. And also a lot of it's microplastics. And we're literally, it's in our bloodstream now. Like we're breathing in microplastics right now. Yeah. I think a week we're eating one credit card. Yeah. So it's, we just have to get rid of that. And then if everything else, we just also get rid of this concept of like single use anything, then uh, we, you know, just carry around a glass and wash it. And then if we just have compostable things, then we don't have to have landfills anymore. I think what you're already saying with the plastic, I, I had this discussion so many times where people say, yeah, but it's recyclable. But the, the argument, my argument at least always is, it doesn't mean just because it's recyclable that it's actually getting recycled and that that recycling process prohibits from any plastic going into the atmosphere, whether it's in bigger chunks or in microplastics. But since you're already now going more into the depth of what your project is about, what did you then decide to come up with? Because as a facilitator um, and already connecting so many different things, I can imagine it, it takes some time to figure out where you come in, where it's not just this huge 
mountain of challenges and issues and things that are going wrong, but where, where you come in and say like, oh, maybe I can uh, bring forth uh, an idea that changes something. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm special. I think anyone could like do any of this. Uh, and I just happen to be focusing on this. And in this moment in time, this is what I came up with. If I were to do this five years ago or five years from now, it would most likely be different. And the way that I've aestheticized it probably also would be different. And the idea is that this is a methodology that can be replicated within any hydrological basin in the world so that uh, the uh, methodology is the same, but the, the details are uh, what changed depending on the location and the you know cultural and political and ecological concerns within that space. That's really what I'm trying to do here is to just synthesize all of these things that people are already doing and just be like, look, like everyone's already doing this. I haven't created anything new. The fact that I am in Argentina and I decided to call it the National Soil Institute which is because I decided that I'd focus on soil health. You know, Akumar is focusing on the health of the river, but you also need to focus on the land-based practices that stop the pollution of the water. The most polluted river in the country is the Matanza Riachuelo. The second most polluted river in the country is the Reconquista Luján, which is just on the other side of the city. So I guess it's not that surprising. It's the largest city in the country, and they just have a lot of pollution, like, everywhere. Uh, the fact that it's called the National Soil Institute, I say it's located within the Ministry of Public Works because there's also a, a National Institute of Water already. So I'm saying there should be a institute uh, called the National Soil Institute. But I really struggled with whether I should make that part of the national government because I don't necessarily think that the nation state is the best way that we can organize ourselves. But we just happen to be in that time period in this moment where that is the overarching uh, political uh, uh, socioeconomic like, structure. Um, so I'm trying to work within those these systems that already exist and to try to transform them from the inside, I guess. But I don't know if that's going to happen in Argentina because uh, I, the other day uh, the, they had the presidential primaries and this like super right-wing guy who doesn't even believe in climate change, he thinks it's a hoax, uh, won the majority of the votes, which was a surprise to everybody, and so he might be the president next year. Um, so that's not great, but... Uh, Going back to the topic of how to be hopeful. Yeah, exactly. So there's where my hope comes from. But so you see, like, already, like, when you locate it within, like, this, like, oh, it's a national... Uh, uh, organization that like is part of the federal government you already see the limitations that every four to five years when like a different country has their different elections like it, it depending on who gets elected it can just throw it all to hell you know so I don't I think also to get, to focus on the positive again it can also go the other way around no even though you can definitely criticize the Obama presidency the amount of hope that was starting to happen while he was running for president also i think the first year or the first two years i think the sense of uh, moving forward and you can achieve i mean the slogan was literally yes we can that i think it can also go the other way and the the, the quickly can crumble and 
uh, a right-wing government gets elected I th uh, and throws everything to hell. Uh, I think it can also go the other way around. That can also give a little bit of hope that not everything is going the wrong direction necessarily right away. Or it can always go into the right direction as quickly as it goes in the wrong direction. I mean, yeah, I feel like the obvious like caveat to that example is that Obama was followed by Trump. <laughs> okay, well... Man, I'm trying to be positive. Well, like, here. you know, <laughs> we have a little glimmer of hope, and then it's just like, no, no, no. We're going to actually not just reverse the last eight years, we're going to reverse the last, like, century. Uh, so, yeah. But I want to I wanna go back to Gunk's phase, focusing not on politics right now or what's happening right now. So, you're talking about the book, uh, but what are the interventions or the steps you're taking that people are actually aware of it? Uh, what are you proposing uh, to do? I guess I should clarify um, the National Soil Institute. It's um, so if we're talking about eco hydrological systems, there's these things called blue green infrastructure networks, uh, which are super exciting. And like from an urban perspective, I'm really excited by those. And so that's like how do we incorporate uh, like more spaces like marshlands and park spaces and forests within our built and unbuilt environments. And then the idea was that if we're going to develop these blue-green infrastructure networks, then how do how does architecture fit within these networks? And so when I was in Thailand, I was working for a, a, a climate research and landscape architecture office, and that's when I was really engaging with blue-green infrastructure networks uh, within uh, Asian cities for the first time. So blue-green means. Okay, so the blue is the water and the green is like the grass and the parks and the forest. And so I, I also call that ecological, hydrological networks. And I'm, I, as an architect, I don't want to like prescribe like your bedroom should be this big and it should be made out of this material. And like you need to walk 10 feet down a corridor to then get to the bathroom or whatever. I just don't want to have that burden to try to tell other people how they should live. But what I do think we need to do is to, if we focus on infrastructure as our architecture, then these landfills, like the landfill in Buenos Aires, that's on the outskirts of town, it's huge. It's, I forget, it's five and a half square kilometers right now, or it's larger, or it, it, it's growing, and it, they have way more space that they're saying can become landfill. It, it's, right, it's right along the Reconquista Luján as well, the second most polluted river in the country. So we need to decentralize infrastructure, especially because if we decentralize infrastructure in an era where we have more extreme climate weather events, then if there is a failure in what I call nodes, which are basically the architectural elements that are distributed across this blue-green infrastructure network, this eco-hydrological network, if we have a series of them scattered all throughout, we don't have to have like this giant power station that could get blown up or catch fire or something happens to it. If we have a decentralized series of nodes all throughout that are taking in the local residents' food waste and then converting it into compost, then you suddenly don't have all these garbage trucks going through the city and you create this hyper-localization of infrastructure so that it's not like throwing something away, which is a 
modernist concept that we cannot continue to use and, and we have to extricate ourselves from that mentality. And so Timothy Morton, either in Hyper Objects or I think it's Dark Ecology, writes about how there is no away. It sounds obvious, but like there's no away. Like, you know, before it was away because like we weren't that many people on the planet and we didn't really take up that much space, but now we're 8 billion. We're going to be 10 billion by the middle or the end of this century. Now away is like usually some poor person's like backyard. And so if we are trying to be better humans, then we can't. And also, even if it's not where a human lives, it's still some other organism that's habitat is being negatively impacted by our stupidity. So uh, you're able to hyper-localize it within uh, people's communities, and then they're able to see what this thing is. They're able to understand, like, oh, my banana peel or my uh, apple core goes literally like a block or two down the street to this node. And the node isn't like this weird big behemoth building that's behind barbed wire that you can't approach, that's windowless. It's completely open. It's basically a park within your neighborhood that you can walk up to. You can deliver the food waste there yourself if you want, or there can be a collection system. It can vary depending on the needs of the place. But you see it happening. And when I was first designing the compost towers, there's the incoming kind of pile, and then it needs to like somehow go up so then it can come down. So you need to have this kind of pulley system, or you need to have like a conveyor belt, or you need to have people like carrying it up. And then you need to have a anaerobic chamber where the fermentation happens, because if you ferment organic waste through these different methods, then it expedites the decomposition process. And then you need to transfer it into an aerobic system, which is basically using worms and other soil critters that further uh, digest the waste into soil. But then I realized all I was doing is replicating the conditions that already exist underground in healthy soil ecosystems. So then now all I have proposed is that you literally just have a like soil exposed. Lot. And there's trees and there's vegetation growing everywhere. And then you have these like one meter diameter uh, steel drums that are perforated that can go into the ground where this fermented food waste uh, is it's filled with fermented food waste and then because it's perforated all of the soil critters kind of come in and they eat away at that and they mix it in with the rest of the soil and then after 10 to 14 days you pull it out and it's compost so there's these nodes and so then you're like visualizing like how these processes happen and so hopefully you're creating interest and if you're not then at least like it's just it becomes this language through their decentralization through their ubiquity you're able to then like kind of open up all these other conversations about okay well like so my food is becoming soil and then the soil grows my food and then how does that influence this river over here and then how is that talking about absorbing carbon? And then you're able to like have this whole almost curriculum that it's this slow uh, kind of education of average people who aren't you know, interested in these things to begin with to just have this just background knowledge that we all need to have operating in the back of our minds within this age of collapse that we're hopefully 
converting into an age of, of regeneration and just ecological awareness. And so the National Soil Institute, it's kind of why I located it within the federal government, because they have the ability to have the money to spend on advertising campaigns that get plastered all throughout the city of like, this is what compost is, and this is how you do it, and this is why you should do it. And then there's these nodes, and the nodes, when I'm talking about these architectural devices, so it's basically like what I said, it's this open soil pit, but then it's also scaffolding and things made out of waste materials, and it's really just architecture as collage. And uh, it can be made out of anything, and it can evolve to look the way that the local community wants it to look like, uh, which is also another way that I'm removing myself. You're not predefining it. as, as It's not predefined. Uh, and then it also is supposed to be a community center. So like one space can be a library, one space can be a market, one space can be a theater. And then also it's making compost. I have to ask you about the title gunk space. What does that actually mean? Is it referring to junk or trunk or what is gunk punk 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 could be good as well no uh, what's gunk yeah so gunk is interesting because non-native english speakers are like what the hell is gunk did you make that word up and no it's an english word and it usually means like unwanted slimy grimy dirty stuff um and so within the uh context of my thesis i kept working with these ideas of inter interstitial spaces and that's another word could be liminal space and so that's talked about in cool house's junk space and by junk space cool house means um like the weird leftover uh ugly spaces that are the result of modernization and urbanization processes so like warehouses and and you know malls and all of these weird in-between spaces and so Really, what I'm trying to get at is that it's a queering of junk space uh, in that these are leftover ugly spaces, but a lot of the times, especially in the case of Buenos Aires, like we were talking about, is that a lot of these leftover ignored spaces are where a lot of native fauna and flora exist, and they're these biodiversity microcosms. Uh, and so they're actually super useful. Um, and so I like to say it's what Cool House couldn't commodify, but please don't actually use that. Um, and so another uh, book that was really influential was uh, Alan Berger, Drawscape. Uh, and that's another thing about these leftover spaces that are all over the result of urban sprawl, basically. And so, and then definitely gunk it it has it, it's very evocative it has this kind of visceral connotation if you like know what it means and so i don't just make the comparison to punk lightly it's not that i'm into punk but a lot of my influences are also the patty smiths of the world and these like very in in your face like i want it to be visceral i want it to be in your face and so hopefully that's a little bit uh what it's getting at and it's also just a fun word and the idea is that they're really cheap and easy to make and if you have in buenos aires you have all these like empty lots like all throughout the city 
that are just kind of abandoned because the buildings get torn down, but then the financing for the new building that was supposed to be built there falls through. So then you have these amazing lots all throughout the city that are just overgrown with trees and, and all the native vegetation, like the pampas grass, which is not in the park space that's like controlled and maintained by the city. But if you go to these abandoned lots, there's all this explosion of biodiversity, which is interesting. And so it's basically just trying to encourage more of those spaces. And then that's where you can locate the nodes, these composting spaces. But, you know, you need a government to allow for that to happen. That I disagree with. So I understand that you need uh, need a government. But from what you now said, I think there's so many amazing examples of where different actors with different perspectives can come in. So on the one hand, of course, you need the government to uh, understand the system and implement the system. But so, so from the governmental side, there can be uh, stuff done, but also you need the individuals that come in uh, that gives them power to directly change something and see that their actions matter. And uh, in the larger system, by educating or showing uh, the larger systems at hand, and by showing a system like that, you see that you're actually part of the environment and, and you're part of the system and uh, what you do matters. And I think uh, once people understand that, other challenges, whether it's climate change or something in a smaller scale or specific to a community, can really happen. Uh, those can be really uh, approached, those challenges. Though I understand that the, the government is, is definitely a part of it um, or needs to be part of it, it's going to be hard to just build that on your own. Once you have the understanding, uh, you can really go forth and, and, and well, change something. Yeah, okay, private property and how do we navigate that? And it all comes back to that because you can have these like communal programs and whatnot, but the, at the end of the day, like the fucking nation state can come along and be like, sorry, we need this for whatever purposes and you need to leave. And that's just the way things go. And I don't really know how to circumvent or get around that. But uh, I guess maybe you have finally cracked where my opti optimism comes from, because it is really like the power of the small community where if you can just get a community to like buy into this idea of a node and they need to compost their food waste and then they see the impact of their own actions it gives them a sense of agency that they didn't otherwise feel like they had before then if you're able to like have a full system we have to change systems And then if you show that we're all part of these systems that you're able to contribute to, then I feel like that's maybe where this optimistic outlook can potentially start to feel more feasible. This is what gives me hope, right? It's not, you can, uh, I can look into politics and uh, whether we're talking about Trump uh, or any government seems like right now that's going into a direction that does not focus on the issues that are at hand. Um, It's about individuals trying to make change happen. And it's the main motivation to do this podcast. It's not about um, yeah, giving people a stage to present their brilliance purely, but to, on the one hand, see what they're working on and connect them to other people to, to give hope and have a hopeful approach to this dark future we're looking towards. Thank you for listening to this episode. Make sure to check out Josh's work via the links in the show notes and subscribe to the podcast on Instagram.